This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Uh, if, you, if you noticed it, I also, too, thought that my vision was really going. I'm like, man, age is getting to me. Uh, the uh, Bible readings uh, for our New Testament and for the passage are, are, are very small. Um, and if you've been with us a while, you know why that happens. And it's because the last few weeks we have had like such huge passages to read that we had to like shrink the text down to fit it all in there. But this week, uh, we forgot to change that font size. So you're not going crazy. It's just a little, it's just a little small. We've been in First uh, and Second Samuel. We're in Second Samuel now. Uh, and today we're going to see a change of dynasty finally and officially. And I don't know uh, what you think a change of dynasty is supposed to be like or a change of power, but I just wanted to describe what it was like in Tudor England. King Henry VIII would have 81 people burned at the stake, two of his wives executed, and 60,000 of his own subjects executed for various reasons. When the next change of reign would come, Edward VI would burn two radical Anabaptists at the, state, but would, uh, at, at the stake, but would legitimize the prayer book rebellion, resulting in the death of 5,500 Catholics. Mary I would be a Catholic who was taking it over. Power is changing hands again. Uh, so when she assumed the throne, earning her name, she would burn 280 Protestants at the stake. Elizabeth I burned five Anabaptists at the stake, ordered executions of almost 1,000 Catholics, 200 of whom were Jesuit missionaries, which were hanged, drawn, and quartered. Change of dynasty almost always comes with immense bloodshed. Although far from perfect in our own history, it's what uh, we hope for the most in our country, um, where we have a representative democracy and we can, there can be a change of power without bloodshed. And when it hasn't happened in our country's history, we mourn for it. The Bible talks about change of dynasty on an epic scale. You see, God is the creator king and he establishes his rule, but humanity starts a coup. Humanity wants to be like God and so they take the forbidden fruit and they take and they eat thinking that they can earn the rights to be their own kings. We rebelled against the rightful king. And from Eve's delivery of Cain and Abel onward to our own pseudo-reigns, it is marked by bloodshed, bloodshed, and more bloodshed as we strive after power. And the question before us is, on this epic story of change of power, what will happen when the rightful king comes? For those of us who were rebellious, shook our fist at the king, what will happen to us. You see, here's how God describes uh, some of how he treats his enemies. This is from Nahum chapter 1. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And I think sometimes we imagine that all these passages are like directed at the devil only, as if the devil was the only rebellious creature. But don't be mistaken, these passages are directed towards those of us who would read them. A warning that a rightful king is coming. A change of power will be reclaimed. Listen to this passage from Isaiah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them, and he struck them, and the mountains quake, and the corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is still outstretched to his own people. 
if God is the rightful king and we are the rebellious challengers, what's going to happen when the rightful king comes? Will we be hanged, drawn, and quartered? Will our rebellious actions be strung out in front of his courts for all to see? Those things that haunt our memories. And then if we reflect on that, what value could we possibly add to his kingdom? Reflecting on our own lives, what is it that we bring that he could possibly want to bring us in as his closest aides? In our passage today, we're going to see a rightful king come into his power. David, the rightful king, has taken his throne. In our previous sermons, he's been fighting off kind of warring factions, right? There's been these coups, um, and, and the household of Saul has been fighting against him. And if you've been with us a while, you've seen that these major splintering generals and factions have been subdued by God and by David time and time again because David is the rightful king. And so our passage is going to start today with David, in some sense, sitting down on his throne, having conquered the majority of his enemies and turning to his advisors and saying, is there anyone left of the household of Saul. And the question on anyone's mind who remains in that household is, what is going to happen to me? I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, which comes from 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to be reading the entire chapter of 2 Samuel chapter 9. <clears throat> and David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table." Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my, my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. <clears throat> when the rightful king came and when David ascended the throne, we see him show kindness, the kindness of God. Now that word kindness in the Hebrew is hesed. And I say that only uh, because I think some of you have probably heard that word before. We struggle to translate this word into English because it's somewhat of a more serious word than our word kindness. 
We translate it kindness, but we also translate it covenantal faithfulness, loving kindness, steadfast love. You see, sometimes I think we conflate the ideas of kindness and niceness. What's the difference between being kind and nice? A lot of our states will own nice after their name as a badge of honor or maybe just some sort of humble brag. Nebraska nice, Iowa nice, Kansas nice, maybe it's just a Midwestern thing, I don't know. But we also recognize the duplicity built into our niceness because like Southern charm, some things can take on subtle meanings. We might be nice outwardly, but inside we're scoffing at you. Maybe we're nice on the outside, but we're shocked that outsiders could be so oblivious to all the cultural things that they just crossed. I found a distinction online that said nice is self-centered. It is pleasing and agreeable in order to bolster one's self-esteem, but kind is others-centered. We're acting in the best interest of others out of a sense of love, empathy, and compassion. A lot of times we think God is nice when really he's kind. Have you ever felt that God was kind of giving you the short end of the stick? Like your life is hard, but he asks you to grin and bear it. Like, don't you know how much I've done for you? You're going to complain about these things that I'm giving you now? Have you ever felt that even at your best, God still doesn't really want to hear about what you've done? I mean, he's got more important things to worry about, right? If his kingdom is all of creation, how could he be bothered with problems as small as yours? He's got wars, floods, natural disasters. Maybe we're even scared to be in this room right now. Knowing the sins that we've committed, being in the presence of God's people strikes inherent fear and anxiety inside of us because we know God is holy like we talked about last week with Uzzah, and we are not. But our God is a God of hesed kindness, of steadfast love, of covenantal faithfulness. In Exodus, it will say that the Lord is abounding with the steadfast love, showing it to thousands, and David offers this kind of steadfast love, this kind of covenantal faithfulness to Mephibosheth. Now, I want to pause for a moment. Um, as I kind of practiced saying Mephibosheth over and over and over again, um, I will mess it up. Just forgive me and know that the names in the Bible are hard. Okay. From this display of hesed kindness from David to Mephibosheth, we're going to learn about God's kindness towards us. What happens when the rightful king takes his throne and then seeks those that belong to a different dynasty? We're going to see two things about God's kindness, that God is kindness despite our past sin and despite our present weakness. So first we're going to look at despite our past sin. You know, affiliation is a powerful thing if you're affiliated with somebody. Um, and it's surprising where it shows up. Uh, like, I'm from Kansas City. And so I am therefore affiliated with Kansas City, which means I can make instant friends, even here in Puerto Rico, with anybody who roots for any of those sports teams. Kansas City Chiefs, Kansas City Royals, Sporting Kansas City, instant friends. But I also become um, instant enemies with fans of the Raiders. What's fascinating about this is this morning, I thought of this analogy earlier, uh, but I don't really follow sports all that much, so I had to Google Kansas City Chiefs and Raiders. Funny enough, they're playing tomorrow, but I did Google Kansas City Chiefs and Oakland Raiders, and they are no longer the Oakland Raiders. They're the Las Vegas Raiders. I could not name two people that are actually playing on any of the Kansas City sports teams right now. And yet, simple affiliation with this place, right, earns me friends or earns me enemies. Mephibosheth is affiliated with the wrong family. 
Affiliation with a sports team might have minor consequences among mature adults, but being affiliated with the family that's challenging the rightful king is dangerous. Mephibosheth was born at the wrong place at the wrong time to the wrong family. This is the story of Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son. Who was, um, he was Saul's grandson. Saul tried many times to kill David, but ultimately Saul would take his own life in battle, the same battle that Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, would be struck down in by the Philistines. Jonathan's brother, so Mephibosheth's father's brother, his uncle, Ishbosheth, tried to claim the throne as his, but mismanagement of his own coup would result in him being murdered by his own people. Generals that were favorable to Mephibosheth's household would have served his family line, but then some of them would defect and then also get murdered. Mephibosheth, although born royal, now lived in Lodabar in the house of Machir, and that's all that we learn about this person, and it appears that Mephibosheth is just trying to lay low. He knows that he's affiliated with the wrong people. So when the conquering king comes and he's summoned to come into this king's presence, what do you think Mephibosheth is expecting? Because I would imagine that Mephibosheth assumes at worst he'll be killed, and at best he'll be ridiculed in the king's court. But David doesn't mock or kill Mephibosheth. David isn't looking for ways to harm Mephibosheth or sideline him or to keep his enemies close. David is looking to show the kindness of God to Mephibosheth despite his family affiliations. Now, there's a couple of things I want to note about this. First is that Mephibosheth knows that he's connected to the wrong people. He knows that he's got the wrong family name. So far in this passage, he's talked about by David and Ziba only in relation to his family name, in relation to a name that might stir the anger of the king that he's about to see. He isn't named personally. He's named by his association with a ragged and broken house. Remember how I said that we are rebellious kings and queens who have stirred the anger of our God. Imagine being called into his presence, not by a personal name, but by our association with a ragged and broken house, son and daughter of Adam. who I had to put out of the garden for his rebellious attitude. At least in our story, Mephibosheth might be able to hide behind the fact that he didn't participate in this coup, that he was too young, that he, he didn't really want to do this, but he serves the rightful king. But there's no mistake that we belong on Team Adam and Team Eve. We have participated fully, willingly in the same sins that they have done. Adam took the forbidden fruit and rebelled, and Adam is who we are associated with, and our association with Adam shows we know our sin. We know those ways that we try to take advantage of others. We know the ways that we have modified and twisted the truth to gain a slight advantage. We know those ways that we have cheated. We know the infidelities to our spouses. We know how we have coveted our neighbor's stuff, keeping up with the Joneses. We know that we have spent our money on ourselves, pleasure, escape, protection, and investment for me and mine. We know that we failed to worship as we ought. We are 100% Team Adam, not Team God. And we are summoned, when we are summoned into God's presence and announced by our affiliation with that family name to a broken and ragged house, we with Mephibosheth might be thinking, at worst I get struck down. 
and at best, I get ridiculed. Is God going to trump out our sins before his house to mock and ridicule us? Should we expect humiliation and death? No. Because God is a God of kindness. Look at what David does. Instead of seizing this opportunity to wipe out any future claim to the throne, David is the first person in the narrative, the actual storytelling, to say Mephibosheth's name. He doesn't just know who he's affiliated with generally. He doesn't just see Team Saul, this rebellious, ragged house. He sees Mephibosheth for who he is. David shows kindness despite Mephibosheth's affiliation. He knows his name. God doesn't just see your sin. Of course he sees it. He's not blind to it. He's not blind to your associations. But he does know your name knows who you are. And I wonder what you're waiting for everyone in this room to find out. You know, like when they find it out, they're going to ostracize you and put you away. Just be like, oh, can't, can't believe that. I wonder what shoes you're waiting for drop. What you're terrified will be described in the presence of the Almighty God, and he'll respond with a gasp. Shame, shame. I want no part with you throw the scarlet letter at you and cast you out. But here's what God says to his people later in Isaiah. You remember that passage in Isaiah, how he talked about his people and how angry he was at him. He said, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume, consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Jonathan was a son of Saul. And although Saul was wicked, Jonathan was honorable. Adam rebelled against God, and although Jesus was a son of Adam, according to Paul, there's an opportunity for all, everyone, all of humanity, to find their refuge inside of the faithfulness of Jesus himself, the second Adam, to turn away from our first family name and be known by another family name, Team Jesus, redeemed by God, Mephibosheth, is redeemed by the faithfulness of his father, Jonathan. Called by his king, and although Mephibosheth would enter with fear and trepidation, when he entered into the throne room and fell on his face, he would hear an exclamation, his own personal name, Mephibosheth, in a following command, do not fear, I will show kindness. We have a calling from God to enter into his holy courtroom. And this should rightly strike fear and trepidation into all of us. And yet when we enter and we fall on our faces, we ought to hear, daughter, son, do not fear. Now just put your name in there. Zach, Margarita, Ed, Marion, John, Sarah, Katie, I know your name. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. God's kindness is shown to us despite our past sins. But we can also see God's covenant kindness to us despite our present weakness. Now, showing kindness 
uh, to those who can't return it or to those who are needy is quite difficult. And I'm going to get at this by way of analogy. Uh, I once worked for a family, and when they went on vacation, I would have to care for their animals. They had two cats and a dog. One of their cats uh, had asthma, and so I needed daily to track this cat down and give it an inhaler. Uh, you may not know me super well yet, uh, but like, I'm not anti-pets by any means, but I'm just like, they don't really do it for me, you know what I mean? And so you can imagine your hard-hearted pastor here, that you're hearing this now, all of you that have pets, um, your hard-hearted pastor here having to chase down this cat, wrangle it, hold this mechanism with the inhaler on the end up to its face while it's fighting it, and give this cat its inhaler. It was a needy cat. I didn't want to show kindness to the cat or to its owners. I was real fed up with it. It wasn't a problem for me to feed the other animals. They were like, you know, normal and kind of whatever returned love like dogs do, you know, so you're kind of like, okay, this is, this is fine. But this cat, um, this cat was difficult. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Zach doesn't know anything about sports and he hates animals. <laughs> what kind of psycho pastors this church? <laughs> and maybe you're right, but this is me. David commits to showing kindness to Mephibosheth, despite the fact that Mephibosheth could not return it, and despite the fact that Mephibosheth is unbelievably needy. Unbelievably needy. Do you guys know the story of how Mephibosheth was crippled? We didn't preach on it, um, but in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, you could go read this story. When he's five years old is when his grandfather and father uh, die in battle, right? Uh, Jonathan is slain, his father's slain, and, and Saul falls on his own sword. Um, his nurse at five years old hears the story and thinks, either this army's coming for me or the next dynasty is coming. And so she picks up the child and gathers the thing and sets off fleeing. And she falls either on the child or down something and cripples both of his feet. Mephibosheth lost his grandfather, father, and his feet in one day. Dependent upon the mercy for the rest of his life, he stands before David, and this is how he defines himself. Listen, listen to his self-talk here. Why should you show regard for a dead dog such as I? Full disclosure, uh, dogs were not man's best friend in ancient Israel. Uh, they were scavengers that picked meat off of unclean things, mangy and lice-filled. They were detested. Mephibosheth had a view of himself from the world's perspective that the world would agree with, nothing to offer, dependent upon the welfare of others, inability to manage, work, or defend his family's property, not even a living dog, but one that is already dead. And by the world's account of Mephibosheth's view of himself, he was, he was right. But his king told a different story. His king did not just have bare minimum kindness, but abundant covenantly faithful kindness to his present weakness. Does God ever get tired of listening to you? Of your same prayer requests over and over and over again? Your same hurts, your same weaknesses, your same disabilities, that God just can't be troubled with your exhaustion, your ongoing marital or familial conflict, the overwhelmed emotions that you feel that God has put onto your plate for the things that he's caused you to be responsible for? Do you think he just wants you to take care of that first and come before him in honor and deference? With God, there's not just bare minimum kindness. 
there is abundant kindness. Maybe you believe that he is kind, but he's not just kind to you. I prayed, you might say, and I receive no kindness. And I think, again, right there, we mistake kindness for niceness. But really, I think what we're pushing up against is that we have a vision for our lives that God doesn't necessarily share. Again, we want to be kings, right? Take the fruit, eat it, control everything. But he's the king. God can ordain you to go through some pretty difficult things in your life while still being kind, still understanding your exhaustion. You want your kingdom, but you're not the monarch. But your monarch is not indifferent to your suffering. Your monarch is not even removed from your suffering. Your monarch suffered much worse for you and doesn't disdain you for what you feel in the midst of your suffering, but longs to show kindness to you. Often we want God to remove our sufferings and our trials. Like this is the only definition of kindness that we have. For God to be kind, he must remove all these difficult things that I'm going through. But that's not always how God works. God meets you in the midst of your suffering and shows kindness to you. Time and time again, when you can't return it, when you're needy about the same things over and over and over again. And yet we know one day that God's kindness will be shown forth in its fullness, where every tear will be wiped away, and all of our disabilities righted, and the whole world righted, and no more wrongs will be done. But right now, God enters in next to you and shows you abundant kindness. Now Mephibosheth receives this abundant kindness by having his grandfather's land restored to his, his family name. Verse 12 says that Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. Mephibosheth, there it is, just had a few moments ago no inheritance for his son, had nothing to offer him and no prospects for earning anymore. And now he had an abundant inheritance, a royal inheritance. But not only that, this crippled man didn't just get fringes at the, at the edge of David's kingdom, but brought in to sit at his very table. You know, the scripture says that when Jesus left us, he went to go provide a place for us. That in his kingdom, we will have a place to call our own that will be truly home. Here, the Bible describes us as sojourners along the way. Now, this home is not independent from or apart from Christ's rule, but in his service, we will have our station. We will have a job in his kingdom that perfectly fits us. And just, just to remind you, um, I am talking about heaven. Yes, that's usually how we, how we describe it, but heaven comes back here, and Jesus redeems the whole earth, and we're resurrected in bodies. Now, these bodies have, do different things than... Uh, what we're used to here, what we see Jesus' resurrected body do, uh, but we come back here in his kingdom and we have jobs to serve him, good works to do that bring glory to his name. I think sometimes we just think that we're like angels floating around in heaven for a long time. That's not the story that the Bible tells. Jesus went to go provide this place for us and that one day, one day we will be resurrected again, healed of our infirmities and brought to fullness, fully equipped to do these good works in his kingdom that we were always meant to do. But he doesn't just give us a place in his kingdom far off and distant. He invites us to his table. This isn't just bare minimum kindness. You can pick off the edges of my field kindness. You will taste the best wine, the best fillets, the most fresh produce, skillfully prepared by the best chefs. 
But that is nothing at all because you are in the presence of the king himself. And this isn't a one-time formal stiff dinner either that will never happen again. Like if you were to meet some other monarch, this is a regular family meal. And I don't know if you've ever had regular family meals in your household or if your family has had regular family meals with someone else, but you know the intimacy that comes with that? That regular meeting together of sharing the highs and the lows of laughing together and weeping together? That's what Jesus wants. Not a one-time stiff formal dinner to show you uh, pretenses of niceness, but regular, committed, covenantally faithful kindness. Come eat at my table. He isn't ashamed to have those that the world sees as dead dogs at his table. He delights to resurrect them to new life. Our God and our King is a King who shows unexpected kindness despite our past sins and our present weakness. But do you know why David showed this kindness to Mephibosheth? All the way back in verse 1, it says, because of his father, Jonathan. Now, i got to remind you of the story a little bit. So it wasn't Mephibosheth's righteousness. It wasn't Mephibosheth's value. It wasn't just um, necessarily the king's good-hearted nature, but it was about a promise that the king has made to another. David had promised Jonathan way back when things were first getting dangerous with Saul. And it says a covenant was made between David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20. Jonathan said that he would be faithful to David, the rightful king. And David said that he would not forget Jonathan and his family. Listen to how it's worded. This is Jonathan speaking. I'm kind of jumping in 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 1 Samuel 20. It's Jonathan speaking to David. If I'm still alive, show me the hesed of the Lord. Show me the steadfast love and faithfulness, kindness of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut me off from your hesed, from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, remember my family in hesed love. Mephibosheth received the kindness and honor because of the faithfulness, righteousness, and honor of another. Because David had made promises to another. The rightful king made promises, and this good king will not fail to fulfill on any of those promises. Brothers and sisters, God made promises to another to show us kindness based on that other's steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, and honor. And God will not fail to fulfill on any of his promises. And in fact, when we see the fullness of these promises come to fruit in the coronation of the rightful king, who did not come in all of his glory, majesty, and power to cut down his enemy's household. He laid down his life for those that spit on him, for his enemies. He took up a crown of thorn and had his own body maimed and beaten and killed in order to fulfill promises of loving kindness, of covenant loyalty, of steadfast love, to give us a new family name so that the king of glory when he comes in, sees not Team Adam, but Team Jesus. This new family name would erase those work of darkness that mark our past and cause us fear to come into the throne room of the living God. This new king, though, would also, despite our present weaknesses, prepare a place for us that we might serve him and invite us to his table that we might fellowship with him. 
You know, it's not a direct connection to the table of the Lord's Supper, um, the table of King David, right? Um, king David, although he was great, was a, a lesser king to one that was always coming. Uh, king David wasn't saying at his table, this is my body and this is my blood. <laughs> uh, take and eat, take and drink. King David needed Jesus just as much as any of us need Jesus. But Jesus is the real deal. He is the king who is faithful. He is the king who gives us a new family name. He is the king who gave of his own body and his blood to bring us into wholeness, to merit us access to this table. And as often as we gather together, we do this regular family meal to know the kindness of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he invited his disciples who would abandon him to one last dinner together. And he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it, and he turned, and he gave it to his disciples. As I am ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. This table is a declaration about how reconciliation was accomplished. It is a declaration of the utmost kindness of God. That what we deserved, we did not receive because of the faithfulness of another. If you, like Mephibosheth, have died to your old name and you've been resurrected into Jesus' new family name uh, through the waters of baptism, then this table is for you. If you haven't yet fallen on your face before the resurrected Lord and you united yourself to him in baptism, I'd ask you not to partake of this meal. Not because the kindness of God is not extended to you. It is. But that the only way through the table is what we have just described. Through the broken body in the shed blood of another. He is what washes away your past sin. He is what um, makes right your present weaknesses and, and, and meets you in the midst of them. He is the way, the truth, and the life. In a moment, I'll pray, and then we can come down the center aisle. We can go to these serving stations on my right and my left. Um, if you require a gluten-free bread, it is on my left over here on your right. You're going to want to head that way. And then there's red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. King Jesus, we are convinced that in your presence we are but dead dogs, but you call us by name. Your reign is so benevolent that you would enter into our suffering so that we might be redeemed from our own suffering and that we might have a place at your table. Holy Spirit, we know that this is just bread and wine, but we ask that although it is a physical nourishment of our body, that you would nourish our spiritual lives by it that we would know that it was never about the bread and wine alone, but it was about being in the presence of our King. May we know his hesed kindness as we partake of these elements this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.